1: Hi, everyone. My name is Armand Zildes, and this is uh, New Books Network. I had the great pleasure of hosting Jennifer Evans today, and we'll talk about their book, uh, The Queer Art of History, Queer Kinship After Fascism, which came out of Duke University Press in 2023. Welcome to the New Books Network, Jennifer.
0: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Thanks for joining us uh, and writing this wonderful book uh before we talk about the book can you tell us a bit about yourself
0: sure i uh i am a professor of history at Carleton university in ottawa canada i have taught here for a long time now and uh, i have the great pleasure of having um amazing students who come to work with me on queer and trans history and i also have this other hat that i wear sometimes that is interested in um the the current moment uh, the populist threat and the authoritarian turn so sometimes that is useful in framing sort of my way into some of these these subjects
1: and i mean although this is a history book it also comes out like that you're concerned with the contemporary it really comes through in a wonderful way um and how did this book come about what's the story behind uh, it <laughs>
0: It's, a, it's an interesting story. Um, it's, a, it's a funny book. I mean, it's a second book, right? It's a second monograph. And I, I didn't have the intention of writing it as a standalone book. I, uh, I published ideas over the last, probably over the last 10 years, and I uh, developed certain themes that were interesting to me that came out of projects I was working on, on photography or on sexual regulation. And in a way they were patchwork. They went in this direction and that direction. And then at, at one point I thought to myself, I wonder if actually some of this kind of works together and actually is part of a singular story. And once, I, once the light went off in my head, that in fact I was in a way workshopping ideas these last years, then I I could see a book, and the trick was, you know, what what um, glues it all together, and this is where I realized that I was actually trying to tell the story of, of interlocking and intersecting uh, dramas, and that kinship was the the glue that that you know bound it all together. So it's a funny, it's not your typical story. Um and what was interesting is that when I realized that or thought I realized I had something, I it was then a question of what do you do with it? You know, is this in fact a book that a publisher might want to publish? And where would that be? And I I first um I'd had a lot of inquiries over the course of the last years from publishers who knew a little bit about my work and were curious, you know, are you writing a book about Herbert Tobias, this photographer that you published? on in the the HR? Are you writing a book about, you know, rent boys? And I'd always said, no, 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 I'm not. And then finally I I realized, oh, maybe maybe somebody might be interested. So I first went to a publisher and floated the boat. And this was, um, you know, uh, uh, at Princeton University Press. And I talked to Priya there and I said, here are my ideas, what do you think? And she said, I love them, but not for our press, but I think you should try Duke. And mm. that's how I ended up uh, approaching um Duke with the idea. And they were very keen and they they saw in this, you know, project something that they could get that they could get behind. So it's I a mean, long and winding road.
1: <laughs> but that's also a very generous way of engaging with your monograph, like from uh, Princeton University Press. I mean it's also like really like the way you're talking about queer kinship that it kind of materialized in these uh, relationships it seems and which brings me to my second question like what is queer kinship and why is it important
0: i am um, it is very much about kinship right it's about the conversation i had with that editor was the product of years in the making of checking in once in a while in emails of uh, following each others career paths and you know so for me um kinship and you know it it's an intellectual category so it has its it has its moorings in conversations that have been taking place for years now in other places and spaces in black feminism and queer of color, trans of color critique. Um, and But for me, it's this really interesting thing that, that allows us to sort of almost um, enunciate sort of that special something that connects us sometimes, intellectually, emotionally, libidinally, um, and and that we can't always articulate, but it's that thing that brings some of us into each other's orbits, and that creates something of knowing, of an affinity, of solidarity, and, and so my job was to use history to try to explain that special something that puts us um, in conversation and in relations with people across our differences, because I felt that from where I stood looking at history of sexuality, we were becoming really siloed in the way that we were practicing or doing our work. And I wanted a a method and a category that would allow us to gather across all of our differences. And I think kinship can do that. And it, it does that for all sorts of reasons, right? The idea of everything from, um, kinship as found family, kinship as alliances, kinship as solidarities. And so I really liked the fact that it was a a very workable category. And I wanted to try to give it some substance in in the book by using historical examples.
1: I mean, and in the book, you also refer to bad kin and good kin and how this is not like just because it's kinship, it's it doesn't mean that it's we sit comfortably with these relationships. can you can you tell us more about that and maybe like uh, speak of some of the examples you have in, from the book?
0: Sure. Um, <clears throat> yeah, and I really benefited from um, thinking about good and bad kin uh, through one of uh, the conversations I had with the colleague here at Carlton, um Alexis Shotwell, who is a philosopher. Uh, at trained at Santa Cruz, who who works also on, on kinship, and so she was um, you know essential to to my thinking. But it really is this this idea that. Um, at least in thinking about Germany and thinking about the post-45 period, East and West Germany, that there are multiple examples of places where people come together and work in solidarity for a common cause. And then there are times when certain people and their politics or their way of being in the world doesn't quite fit with the uh, the you know the decisions of of a group of people. Um, organizing for change. And so I was really interested in those moments when some people were seen as um, maybe casualties or affecting negatively affecting the group's uh, motives for change. And so one of those great examples would be in the 70s in West Germany around gay organizing and what to do with um, some of the more utopian ideas that were coming out of the sexual revolution around intergenerational sex. So what do you do with the question of pedophilia and people who are advocating for absolute sexual freedom, even if that means, you know, uh, sexual freedom across the age barrier? And so here's a great example where in West Germany there was a real, you know, wrestling with, you know, how are we going to secure the rights of, you know, the majority of people. Um, if it means perhaps sacrificing some of our movement along the way. And and so these are decisions that groups have to make. And it's a great example of of, good kin and bad kin, that certain people and the way that they want to live their lives don't serve the purposes of of the, the group. And so there are some of these interesting moments where certain people are just seen as not fitting And I was really interested in sort of thinking through some of these examples because they really do help us understand uh, the radical potential of of politics. And sometimes when we have to make or we choose to make decisions for more respectability-driven approaches to politics. And sometimes I think that that thorny story gets forgotten when we are celebrating all that we've achieved and we forget that, oh, well, in some cases, some people were were sacrificed along the way.
1: And I guess, I mean, as you said, respectability plays a key role in these discussions and also for your book in general, I would say.
0: Definitely. I, I mean, that's where it's a very contemporary, you know, the book ends with a very contemporary discussion about the losses and the gains of what we've achieved. And also it's it's meant to sort of um, open the the door to alternative pathways that could have been taken. So in this way, it's it's an interesting uh, work of history because it's just really trying to make us self-aware that um, you know what does it mean that we hold very dear um, that we have certain political formations, social formations based around the family and marriage, and that that is seen as sort of the the pinnacle of what we've worked for when you know, if we look through time and history, we see that not all queers, not all gays and lesbians believed that the family was really the outcome of their organizing. They wanted to do away with everything that looked bourgeois and heteronormative. And so why have we lost that sense of our collective past? And what does it mean um, when we put all of our eggs in the basket of uh, an institution that looks a heck of a lot like um, heterosexual institutions that we apparently once were very critical of. So, so I, my book is trying to kind of get us just to be very self-aware about, you know, where we find ourselves today.
1: I mean, in that sense, you also push us towards a different queer historiography that does not maybe center itself around identity, but rather finds traces of affect, liberal investments, erotics, and joy. Could you, could you tell us a bit more about this?
0: Yeah, I, um, I uh, that, and that's something that is really very much a product of having done a different kind of queer history for a good part of my my life. So I started out, like, like many of us, at least historians, trained at a certain moment in the wake of the really excellent work by people like George Chauncey. You know, looking at um, regulation, early 20th century U.S. in his case, legal reform, uh, some cases sexology, a lot of the work in sexology, and what I found was we often told, we tended to tell the same story, and that was of state repression, whether that's through you know the law or through medicine, and efforts to just push back at that, and and I found that that just that only went so far in explaining um yeah the 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 nuts and bolts of people's lives and i thought that maybe what we needed to do was find a new set of methods a new set of questions that would force us to ask different questions of the past and in the process would show us a different story than just um than just repression and resistance that might actually get us to see other things like desire love lust longing emotions that go beyond just you know these two. And so so for me, it was about trying to write a different kind of queer history, which also lent itself to using different methods and also a different source base. So instead of just looking at police files and court records, which is what I always did, and which is a perfectly excellent way to do history, I said to myself, well, why don't we look at photography? Or why don't we look at theater? Or why don't we look at um, the kinds of sources that that are more subjective and maybe difficult to work with? Why don't we as historians spend time with those sources and develop a framework for pulling them apart in new ways because they might reveal different stories and different voices than the ones that we're we're used to? So that's how I ended up getting really interested in, in both the different method of doing the work, but also a different a different source base entirely
1: and I mean one of the things I really enjoyed in the book is that you also reflect on these choices and you you make the work of history show itself which is really I think important but also really enjoyable to read because usually uh, text some texts can be very obscure in the sense how in the sense that how those things come to comes together but then, you show how those things actually come together. Um,
0: It's funny that you say that. I mean, that was one of the things that I pitched to um, Princeton. I said, you know, this book is not just sort of the omniscient, you know, um, uh, narrator, you know, just presenting the facts. It would be really about sort of, um, and it's not a success story. You know, like I make some, I made assumptions around the work in moments in time that reflected the era. And that reflected the limits of my own thinking and the limits of my own um my own politics. and And so I tried to really put that in there to show us that we we do evolve as scholars, and that people's work matters because it didn't just, you know, it just't it wasn't that I woke up one morning and I said, "Oh, race. <laughs> I have been really not tackling race. It's because other scholars' work, you know, made me, pivot my own um, position and positionality. And I wanted I wanted the reader to see that that is not just doable, but that's essential. And so to front end that part of the story was was key and to make it then part of kinship. So I'm reading the past with the help of these other people who have no idea the impact they've made on me, but that their work is pushing me to do my work better. And I wanted that to be very much a part of the part of the story in a way that didn't then make it the entire story. So it's not just me meandering about, but it's really just showing the importance of being self-reflective and thinking through the choices, the choices that we make.
1: So in a sense, it's also an intellectual history, so to say, um, yeah, and that's, I mean,
0: it's not history, right? Like in a way it's um. that's where I always find it funny because uh, it's that those are the moments where historians don't do that generally. Um, and that's where, you know, but, but people in sociology, um, criminology, uh, you know, any of the ethnographic work that people do, it's, it's, it's been common to do this sort of auto reflective, very common. And yet for historians, it's like, oh, that's a, that's strange. And so it's, it's also about really showing the benefits of other ways of doing things for, for what we, you know, in our own little, in our own little corner of the field.
1: And I mean, like, I was gonna already mention this, but like, I mean, I think it even goes beyond that because you you really implicate yourself in the book, but also in the here and now of the researcher in the analysis without being presentist. And this was especially the case uh, and uh, in your analysis of like um, Wilhelm von Blöden, like the pictures and like the critique, but also like different way of looking at those pictures Uh, from not today's perspective per se, but from your relationship with these pictures, maybe. Uh, Can you tell us more about this kind of, I mean, because this implication goes beyond being reflective, right? It's It's also acknowledging that you as a subject, as a person, you have also you're part of the queer kinship, basically.
0: Yeah. And it's also well, so the the example is uh Willem von Gloden is this Prussian, 19th century Prussian uh photographer who travels like so many in the 19th century to Italy, uh where he, you know, where he embarks on uh you know uh an opportunity to live the life he's always wanted, but can't, let's say, in, in Prussia, and that is uh one of uh um, <laughs> imperial imaginings and erotic encounters with uh, with younger younger men and boys and he takes photos of these encounters or people in his midst and then they become pornographic sort of postcards it's erotic photography not really pornographic Uh, and uh, and this circulates within Europe and becomes part of this sort of underground homosexual desire uh, that for for warmer climates and and cultures that are more supposedly open to the passions of of men and boys. And so this is a really interesting set of sources and very challenging and it's been interpreted in many different ways over the last 100 or so years. And I just, I'm I'm fascinated by them because um, they also pose interesting challenges in terms of respectability, right? Like, so what do we do with evidence of uh, grown men desiring younger men younger boys and we live in a world today where that is just really not acceptable in all sorts of ways and we've forgotten that um those you know that same gaze that set, those set of desires were set in opposition to 19th century stultifying 19th century um, visions of, of masculinity in the family. And we've also forgotten, and this comes from someone like Rachel Cleaves, this amazing scholar who did this very challenging book on a similar story in the UK. Um, we forget that these younger men and boys um, had agency themselves and that they came from families that in some cases made choices around, you know, their their sons being involved with these European men because it was a better alternative than working in agriculture or in industry at the time. And so what I'm saying is that these images that to our mind today perhaps just look like coercion and power imbalance are actually so much more when we pull them apart in all sorts of ways. And what's interesting is that I am able to do that in a way that colleagues of mine have not always been able to do based on sort of our own positionality. So it's one thing for me to stand up in a room looking as I do, um, speaking to a very charged and fraught subject. And it's another thing for a younger male scholar to do the same kind of thing where we live in a moment where there's suspicion around one's intentions uh, where, you know, the erotics around sort of men and boys looks differently if it's being delivered by a younger queer man versus me. And so just to recognize that all of these dynamics are in play and influence sort of the things that we can argue and and see in our sources. And then just one other example is that... Um, Sometimes I find we're in a place today where we look to examples like this and yeah, we only see the sort of coercion and power imbalance to make arguments about empire and how wrong the imperial gaze was. But we're we're not always able to, to recognize that when we do that work and it's important work, sometimes it's at the cost of, in this case, the boys and their families who lived their lives in a different way uh, at that moment in time and had choices, made choices, and maybe didn't even see themselves as victims of circumstance. So, so it's just to say that these kinds of sources are are really complicated. And it's, it's um, important that we come at them from a variety of different perspectives, constantly self-aware of how we are positioned in relation uh, to them,
1: and I mean, maybe moving from the story of photography, you also problematize the politics of visibility in queer and trans activism. Can you tell us a bit, a bit about that as well?
0: Yeah, uh, that's then that's tricky, and that's something I'm still I'm still trying to work on in this new work that I'm that I'm doing um, around visibility politics and how sometimes uh, the people who are who who become sort of the visible markers of a movement don't always represent the um you know the many different sides of of folks involved in um you know involved in the constituents that are represented by the movements themselves and so this this question of of visibility and what issues, what people, what subjects become visible and then palatable is is really an interesting one around this question of respectability. Um, You know, uh, as an example, I end the book with, you know, a a, a kind of a a nasty moment from a few years back around trying to establish a community center, you know, in honor of uh, the legacy of of Magnus Hirschfeld as a way of bringing together queer and and maybe trans communities. And that's the question mark. Right. This was an effort uh, that was supposed to be a space for a critical conversation between academics and everyday people. And it turns out that the organizers um, didn't imagine a space that wouldn't in- be trans-inclusive. And so this was one of those moments where visibility politics, so we've gotten to a place where we could actually have an institution beyond the Schwulis Museum that might represent sort of the queer past, but it would be at the expense of including trans people. And so that's another example of, you know, gains and losses that we've attained a certain amount of respect and and rights for certain members of the community, but not always including other members and trans people would be one example. And then, as we know, the Islamophobia within um, the queer movements in, in Germany has been another one of those places where we haven't seen the, um, you know, the aspirations of equality um, you know really pan out for everyone.
1: I mean, also, having in mind the Homo Monument, um, how does German memory culture play into all of this?
0: Yeah, The monument is great, is a great example of uh, of all of these things, just, uh, you know, an effort to, so it's 2011 that the monument, the, uh, the Homo Monument is uh, unveiled, and it was a great, a huge deal, it was a huge amount of work to get a monument in the center of Berlin to recognize for, for Germany to recognize its historical injustices vis-a-vis um, queer people. And so this was a very big deal. And it's not the first monument that we've seen in Germany. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, it was a, the result of a lot of organizing and a lot of effort. And, and so when this was unveiled, it's also interesting because we have in, in when this is a, um, brought into being, you know we find out about one of these last remaining survivors who who shows himself to the committee and says, "This is my story. I was persecuted by the Nazis and here I am. And then also in the postwar period. So it's this huge, huge moment of reckoning and success for, um, for the, the um, queer movement. But then in the way that the monument actually, you know, comes together, it reveals all sorts of fissures and fault lines that had been so far unprocessed. And one of those was of course, you know, how do we deal with the fact that lesbians were also targeted by the Nazis, but not in the same way that gay men were? And so do we represent them in the monument or do we not represent them? And so that unleashed a huge debate among Um, some mainstream feminists who, uh, you know, really wanted female um, inclusion in the monument. And then, you know, uh, there were some of the choices that were made (laughs) around how to actually put the monument together. So it has this wonderful, for folks that don't know, right? It has this wonderful sort of a vitrine that sh- is through which you can see a film and it originally it was intended to have a film with um you know two young men kissing and they were meant to represent sort of lost desire and uh and the beauty of of queer love living on and uh and so some folks said well it's it's two men and some folks said that that's not representative uh and uh and then it became unveiled that one of the um actors in the film actually had far right a far right sort of connection and that was problematic because what are we representing then if we're representing um, queer desire so it just became this sort of focal point for a larger conversation and then the the one other thing that's interesting about it and it's still there so while the film has been changed out and it's meant now to represent the queer community queer trans community broadly uh it still has the placard in front of it that provides the story of the monument. And if you look at it today, you can still read that it says, you know, Germany bears a historic, you know, a historic responsibility to take a stance in protecting sort of queer love. Um, But then it's got this interesting phrasing that says, you know, Germany has this special re- uh, responsibility because it's learned from its past. And the challenge to queer desire, it's, it's inferred, comes from a way. And this placard basically says that, you know, homophobia doesn't exist in Germany. We've learned and moved on, but it comes from a way. And when it was built, it was built also around this moment of, you know, Islamophobia that suggested that migrants brought homophobia with them to Germany. And this was one of those cultural values that we can't, we can't, uh, you know, get behind, which is a fiction because we know that homophobia remains a problem in Germany. It remains a problem in Canada. And it's not brought to Germany or to Canada, the US. From others, it's homegrown. And so this is one of those interesting ways in which the monument does a lot of different kinds of work and where it still needs to perhaps go further
1: and still. Oh, I mean, as I was reading the chapter, I was shocked that at some point I agreed with Alice Schwartz about the topic. <laughs> that was funny to figure out as well. Um, before we end, I would like to hear also more about your new project. What are you working on now?
0: I'm um, so I'm uh, I'm writing. I'm trying to write uh, a global sort of history of photography that um, asks really a very basic question. And that is, if we were to view the sexual revolution, such as it is, if we were to view the sexual revolution through photography, you know, what story would it tell us that is different than if we were to say, view it through a legal or a medical lens? So how would we write the history of the sexual revolution differently if we wrote it through photos? And that's everything from personal collections of photos, you know, party photos, street photography, uh, photo books. So how would it look differently? And it's really, again, another example of doing a sort of a trans-inclusive queer uh, approach to, to sexuality through through photos from around the world. And so it's a global, it's meant to be a global story. And the trick is that it's, uh, I'm hoping to write it for a crossover audience. So while this book that I just did is sort of dense and theoretical, uh, this other book is meant to take all of those really great ideas that we read as scholars, but to try to boil them down in a way for everyday readers who are super keen on this story, but, you know, don't want to have to labor through the way that academics speak to each other. So that's, Mm -hmm. for me, that's the challenge because I've come to realize that that's actually very, that's been very, um, that's my language. That is the academic speak is the language that I've used. And so what does it mean now to actually write in a way that, you know, my kids can understand or my neighbors can can you know, get excited about. And so that's the, for me, that's the the challenge at hand alongside the global lens, which is not for, not for the faint at heart. It's a, uh, it's a great example of, uh, of, you know, all of the wonderful work that's out there that we, uh, we really don't always look at because we are so bounded by our sort of national, you know, our national frames. So that's, that's what the next book is going to look like.
1: It sounds so exciting. I look forward to reading it and maybe we'll have another conversation about that book when it's out.
0: That would be great.
1: Well, thank you so much for joining us, Jennifer. Um, it It was such a pleasure and fun conversation and I recommend everyone to read this wonderful book. Thanks so much for having me.